one path through time from birth to death. Regrets, regrets. Narrow the path through time. Beautiful the forest it traverses. So much to see, so many smells. I woke today with deep regret at paths I had not traveled. Most days, the awe of my surroundings, the joy of stepping at a lively pace, the companionship of those I meet along the way satiate my senses and bring great joy. And yet, today, regrets. So little time before I reached the summit, so many paths I might have taken, sights I might have seen, loves I might have loved. So little time so narrow a path, so many other paths, so many other paths untraversed. I am thirsty today, while so many other days I have drunk deep and stepped along the path giddy in the aftermath of wine. Today, my throat is parched. Regret. Regrets for all the wine I might have drunk, sadness at the wine we might have shared, so little time before I reached the summit. So many paths I might have taken, wines I might have tasted, loves I might have loved. So little time. So many other wines we might have shared. So many other wines untasted. One path through time from birth to death. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. One path through time. So that poem that you just heard right there was written and read by today's guest, my uncle, Alexander Turwheel. So Tonto Alex, who is 84 years old, is my mother, who's from Belgium, my mother's sister's husband. So when he talks about some of his history and some of the culture of Holland, this is uh, even new to me because my family history is in on the Belgium side. So today's episode, now I've been trying to think what is the underlying current, the theme of this episode. While some of them have a very strong theme, for instance, the last episode we did was the Shenandoah. The, um, some recent ones have been West Virginia cryptids, um, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, where it's like really trying to learn about a topic in an informal way. This one is more of a slow burn. And it really does feel like this one culminates in a very profound way. And in listening back to it, I'm like, what is the theme here? And the theme seems to be 
that Tonto Alex has lived and worked and traveled to over a hundred countries. He used to work for the World Bank and he was in the education and the health departments and he worked in restoring universities in, um, you know, in Africa and in Asia and in China. And having um, interacted with such an enormous, enormous swath of humanity um, the themes that kept coming up in Tonto Alex's story seemed to be about communication beyond immense cultural and language barriers, being able to communicate in a very human way. And that's what really seems to be so powerful about this episode. And I think that this theme comes to its apex in this podcast when Tonto Alex tells about his experience of being three years old at a Nazi checkpoint in Holland during World War II. There were tears in his eyes and tears in my own because it is so intense. And even in the midst of a world war, intense ideological clash, cultural clash, language clash, you know, almost this, this feeling of, um, a, you know, a war of good and evil is almost kind of how we look at it in history. Even in those moments, my uncle is able to communicate with a Nazi officer. And you're going to hear that story. Um, and he, my uncle actually wrote an entire book about it, which uh, you can, um, <clears throat> you'll hear in this podcast, my uncle is an author in his retirement. He has been writing bo little books of poetry. He's written about his family's experience um, escaping in World War II. He has written um, a book of short stories about his time in the wilderness. You're going to hear one of those about in the Allagash. And now he has a book coming out about soccer. If you're interested in checking these out, you can find them at Alexander Terwell, T-E-R-W-E-E-L-E.com. Anyways, let's get into this episode, a slow burn that grows in profundity. That's how I feel about today's. We really feel like it is a experience through a lifetime. And this theme of one path through time, I've been thinking about that a lot after this episode. We talk at the end a lot about death and the contemplation of the, the, the end of life. And after the podcast, I asked my uncle if he has any spiritual beliefs and it seems as though he... He does not personally believe that that there's something that that we go on after this mortal life. Whereas I more and more through um, you know talking to paranormal investigators, my own strange, um, numinous, uncanny experiences, I do believe more and more that there's an immense mystery beyond this lifetime. And I'm starting even to think a lot about reincarnation and. Um, this idea of one path through time. I'm starting to have this feeling, I don't even know if I can articulate it properly, but that perhaps just pick one path. That yes, of course one can re can re um of course one can reinvent themselves, you know, as they're inspired by something, a purpose in life or a passion in life. And yet to kind of just pick a path because yeah, you might not be able to do every single thing you wanted in this lifetime, but 
perhaps will be reincarnated a hundred times and you'll get to do it in another lifetime. So perhaps in this one, just really pick one direction and go with it. I don't know. I don't know. That's just kind of a feeling I've been thinking about lately and do it fully to like fully. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, let's get into this thing. Enough of me talking. Let's let my uncle talk. I absolutely loved hearing these little glimpses of, of what life is like for people um, in all over the world and um, different cultural norms and, and how things in the culture through history. You know, for instance, um, me, I've never even been to Holland. So hearing my uncle talk about what Holland, what the house was like in the 1600s, extremely fascinating. We're sitting up on the top of Aaron Mountain here in Rappahannock County in Virginia. It's springtime, middle of April. Dogwoods have just started blooming. The red bud have been out for a couple of weeks. We're looking out across a valley with very few houses in it. And across the end of the valley are two or three sets of mountains. They're called the Blue Ridge, of course. Uh, the main one being Old Rag. A spring day, a little bit of chill, a little bit of a little bit of a wind, but nice, glorious sun and a clear blue sky. So we're doing this on your back patio, and your house and yard is on this little knoll, like you said, looking at Old Rag. Now, have you ever hiked up to Old Rag and see if you can see your house? I have done that many times. <clears throat> I have taken uh, uh, compass readings of the exact distance from here to the top of Old Rag, and when I get up there, I reverse those readings, and I can spot directly where the house should be. Unfortunately, this ridge is a little lower than the one behind it, and so I can see okay. uh, uh, two other mountains, a little uh, battle run and big battle run, which are about a mile from me, behind me, but I cannot see the actual spot where my house is, even though I ah. can almost locate it exactly. Ah, well, that's interesting. That would be really cool if you could find it from there. I've been, I, so we, as you know, we just moved over to Pocahontas County, West Virginia, and I've been trying to climb up the mountains and see if I can see where we are. And I can see like the neighbor, but not quite us. They'll always be like a little hump in the mm -hmm. way when you're up in the mountains. But I thought this would be a cool podcast because this podcast, as I've told you, you're my uncle. And um, the whole reason that this started was one, you know, I moved from New York City. Uh, my major focus was hunting and my work was learning about the plants and wildlife. And I was meeting all these people, a lot of herbalists who would tell me the most amazing stories. And so many of them were about wildlife, about the, um, you know, being in nature there, even spiritual experiences while in nature. And I thought I got to make this podcast. So I thought it'd be so interesting to have you on as my uncle. I know that you're a world traveler and you allowed me to hunt my first deer here on your property, which was a doe. And I used your, uh, 30, 30, 30, 30 iron sights scopes and your, um, your style of hunting is, I feel a little more of, um, a new England gentleman, 
type hunting, which I find extremely fascinating. It's just a little different. You're not up in tree stands. It's a little more. So I thought we could talk about all these kind of things. I thought we could talk about your um, travel, your travel, some of the stories you've been telling us the past few nights over dinner. And then you're also an an author and poet. And I thought you could maybe read some, from some of your books. Certainly we can do those things. I'd I point out a couple of things. Old Rag is about 25 miles away. Mm -hmm. So picking out a very small house, well, not a very small house, but a very small spot would be difficult in any event. And, yeah. and it is. And yes, uh, you shot your first deer on this property. That's right. Uh, with one of my guns. And yes, I only use iron sights. I don't believe in scopes and would not shoot with one. Um, now, um, I thought it'd be kind of cool to start this by telling you, like, kind of from my point of view growing up. So, I mean, obviously you know all this, but I'm saying this for the listener. So I grew up in the suburbs. I would think we were probably one hour from you, maybe even a little more, maybe a little less, but we were about an hour from you and you... You're in a different house now, but you were out here in, in rural Virginia. And, um, you know, you would have a lot of family over at your place for the holidays, Christmas, New Year's. And um, many times we would be eating deer. And many times I'd come here and as a little kid, I'd see in your garage a deer hanging upside down. And for some reason, it never, you know, I knew what you guys were doing, but it never crossed my mind to ask to like really be involved in it. And I definitely, I think any child looks at it with great astonishment and wonder looking at this enormous deer as a kid, you know, hanging in the garage. Um, and I know your sons were, were hunters, um, which would be my cousins. Eric did a lot of bow hunting. Um, and one story I wanted to say before, as we get going here is I remember it must've been like Christmas and there was snow and this, it dark had come and we were all gathering at the dining room table, a big dining room table. There must've been 20 people there. You know, my mom, my dad, my sister, all of your kids who, who maybe your siblings, just tons of people. And, um, Eric was out hunting. This is my cousin, your son. He's out hunting and he comes back and I guess he says he got a deer or something. And then he was going to go butcher it. And he invited me to come to butcher it. And, or, you know, just to uh, remove the guts and to field dress, field dress, field dress it. it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't know how old I was, eight, 10. And so we go out in the darkness. There's, it's a, the snow is illuminated from the moon and we go out there and he finds it in the woods. And as he field dressed it, you know, it was cold, just the billowing steam pouring out of it. Like a, like, um, you know, I lived in New York city for 10 years, like one of those, those, those smoke vents, like a chimney, just all the steam pouring out of it. And this is in, forever ingrained in my little child mind, is billowing steam pouring out of his deer. What has astonished me is that the first time you saw a carcass hanging in the garage where I uh, let them hang for a few days before butchering them, many of the people that come into the garage at that point go, ah, and mm. turn around and do not want to go back. Mm. Your reaction was one of curiosity. Do you actually remember and, that? Yeah, I certainly do. Interesting. And uh, I, when I wanted to skin it a few hours later, uh, you wanted to come and watch. Again, uh, quite contrary uh, to 
some of my grandchildren. Others are, like you, very, very curious. Interesting. Depends very much, I think, on their uh, how soon in their life they have been able to watch hunting hmm. and watch animals in the wild. Hmm. So, I didn't know that. I didn't. I don't. I do remember watching you skinning. I do remember that at one point. Again, I must have been eight, ten, mm-hmm. eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I will say thank you. Thank you from um, your nephew to my uncle for, I think you bought me a slingshot at one point. I did. <laughs> and so, and we did do a bunch of 22 target practice. So yes. for a kid coming out from, you know, coming from the suburbs to go out in the country and shoot 22s, that was awesome. And the spirit of that still lives because yesterday you, me and Vivian, my girlfriend, were shooting clays, shooting 22s and doing all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I thought to really um, start interviewing you, I thought it would be fascinating to hear about um, what it was like to be a boy up. You, was it in New Hampshire where you grew up? Well, you have to be cautious. Of course, I was initially brought up in, well, in, in Holland where I was born. Well, that's but I part did of move this. to New Hampshire when I was uh, 16 or 17 years old. Ah. And in th- those next dozen years, uh, between 17 and 30, I did an enormous amount of hunting, canoeing, mm. hiking, fishing, most of the time by myself. Mm. Uh, there's indeed, in this book that I'm holding now, this, the uh, call of the Allagash Wilderness, uh, the main story in it is of a canoe trip I took mm. up the Allagash. The Allagash is a river in the very top end of uh, Maine mm. and runs curiously north as opposed to many of the streams on the east coast um, and that was a, a few days of canoeing solo uh, for quite a while the only other time I did a really nice canoe strip was a canoe trip was with my son Eric that you've already mm-hmm. mentioned mm-hmm. Uh, I was at this time I'm retired so the other end of my life I guess <laughs> and that was in Utah in mm-hmm. the and uh, Oregon, with a river called the Hawaii, mm. which is not spelled Hawaii, but it's apparently named after a Hawaiian that was there in the 17th or 1800s. Wow. Uh, and, and died. Uh, a long, long trip. We did about 80 miles. Now, very serious canoeing because it was a gorge equivalent, I would have thought, to the Grand Canyon, in depth, but in width, it was only uh, 30 or 40 yards across. Mm. And the uh, river ran at the very base of 1,200-foot drops. And unfortunately, was filled most of the time with rock, mm. which meant that we spent more time portaging uh, mm. sometimes than we spent uh, uh, in the water itself. Because when the rocks had come down from 1,100 feet, they completely filled up the river, which ran, of course, through the rocks, but not it, you were not able then to run your canoe down through. You'd have to carry up and over. Uh, that was a very great trip and one I enjoyed. That's not, I'm, the, I've never done that portage thing. And that sounds fascinating, especially when you read that in history. Like a few years ago, I read River of Doubt, which is about um, Theodore Roosevelt's trip in the Amazon. And they have to do that all the time because it's an unmapped river 
just mm-hmm. constantly getting mm-hmm. out and having to pick up everything and walk around some waterfall. I mean, I, I'd like to do that at some point. You learned very quickly that if you can't see a, a spot to exit before the next turn, you walked first to the turn because when mm. the, when you, once you were in the water and going, mm. if there was no exit, you were going to be in great trouble. Mm. So looking ahead was very, very important. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, can, let's, let, can we go back to Holland? So one thing I thought, so <clears throat> I listened because, you know, my career is illustration. So all day long, like old time radio, I'm listening to podcasts and I'm listening to ones about hunting, um, hunting dogs, nature, et cetera. Something you rarely hear about is what hunting is like in other countries. So was, did you grow up in Holland with a hunting culture? And is there a hunting culture in Holland? There is. Uh, I myself was too young to do the hunting okay. at that point, but both my father and my grandfather were avid hunters the, uh, and it's ex- is it not extremely flat? It is mostly flat okay. and therefore very often very good duck hunting because okay. there are quite a few marshes, marshes of course, when, when there's flat and a lot of water in Holland, as everybody knows. Uh, so my grandfather was mostly a duck hunter. Uh, my father, however, had moved to Indonesia and consequently uh, in the... 1920s, real wilderness, uh, he hunted a lot of bigger game mm. for food uh, to feed the, the workers that he was had hired on a tea plantation. Wow. Uh, one of the types of uh, animals was a very small deer. Uh, I can't think of the name immediately now, but they are about the size of a medium-sized dog. Uh, mm. Very good because without refrigeration and in a very hot climate, a creature a whole uh, camp of, of guys will eat that in five seconds. Thirty or forty pounds uh, is perfect for a few people to sit down and, and eat fairly quickly. That is fascinating. Wow. So that's where much of his initial hunting came from, and of course he carried that forward whenever wherever we went. Uh, we had been lived for a while in Connecticut when we were in the in the U.S. Hunted mostly pheasant there, mm. mostly with a Springer Spaniel, mm. because the Springers can get a cock pheasant out of the brambles, whereas mm. most pointing dogs cannot. Uh, then, when we moved later to New Hampshire, as I said, between my mid-teens and 30 years old, uh, we were hunting mostly uh, woodcock and grouse. Uh, and had to switch from the uh, Springer Spaniels to the Brittany Spaniels, which are a pointing dog mm. that would keep your flush within shooting distance, even in thick uh, pine trees and spruce. Mm. Mm. That sounds beautiful. And you and you had told told me while you were up there, you would you guys did all of the stuff. You did didn't you do maple syrup, acorn flour? I think you told me you did a little muskrat trapping, like you did. You did the whole like old school uh, boy outdoor stuff. When when you're living in the wild, so mm. to speak, uh, up there, uh, closest house to where we lived was about a mile and a half away, mm. and it lived on a dirt road. Uh, 
we hunted the dirt road. You walked down the middle of the dirt road and tried to flush grouse on either side. Mm. You never had to worry about any traffic or anybody there. Uh, I hunted mostly with my father and my brother at that point. Later on, uh, my father being elderly was not so active, uh, and I did a lot of hunting on my own. Uh, and I would go camping five, six, seven days somewhere up in the mountains uh, and hunt and f- find my way back. Uh, by yourself? Yeah, by That's myself. That's what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. So at night, not everything, I do it all by myself too because I just like the meditativeness, uh, the meditative ability just kind of um, time. Well, one, you can really focus on what you're doing. It's much more meditative by yourself and um, the layers of time go back, start peeling away. And um, that's kind of my goal with where we've moved because we're surrounded by a lot of national forests. My goal is to go three, four, five days like with a map, but to have already been doing day hikes so that I can just go because you walk for miles and just be back there by myself. And yeah, what do you, is there a reason that you enjoy being by yourself? Yes. For what I've said? For the reasons you state. And yes, you you move into a state of um, enormous distances from everything, not just physical, but, but mental distance. Um, one becomes, one thinks more to oneself, not speaking, of course, but being alone for two or three weeks with no one around and no one to see, uh, one processes totally different types of uh, ideas than when you're mm. uh, with people constantly. In particular, most of the time in New England or northern New England and Maine, uh, one is thinking about the fact that, that the Indians were here just 150 years ago mm. living the way you're traveling now, mm. except with without the compass perhaps, mm. <laughs> uh, and certainly without the gun. Um, but nonetheless canoeing up or down one of these streams. Mm. And you're always impressed with the fact that a fairly rudimentary society Mm. nonetheless was able to survive in a place where you as a person, yourself, me in this instance, would not last very long. Mm. Even even, uh, with a pistol or a knife, uh, handy would probably never get through the first winter. Yeah, I've heard people talk about that. It's, it's pretty, it's kind of comical about, you know, the European exploration of the like Arctic areas and, you know, how they're all freezing to death and whatnot. And at the same time, there are people, there are indigenous people that have been living there no problem for extremely long periods of time. Yeah. That's fascinating. Very fascinating. All right. You were talking about being alone. Mm hmm. I think I have told you before, and I'll tell you again, that I was living in Holland in my mid-20s, uh, and I needed to get from Amsterdam to Beirut, where I had another job waiting for me. I w- was uh, almost penniless, and I was able to buy myself a second-hand motor scooter for $75, uh, get it working, and I took three months to go from Amsterdam to Beirut. And this is being in the 60s when one traveled, of course, one needed visas and all of the paperwork to be done, very difficult to get. But in those days, uh, there was no Serbia or uh, 
other countries, it was all Yugoslavia in the middle, just time of Marshal Tito when he was there. So those three months, I traveled alone. As you have, have known, I camped the whole way, sometimes with the tent, which I had, and sometimes simply along the side of the road in the sleeping bag, because no reason to, to, to pitch a tent when the weather is good and the sky is uh, clear and the stars are up above you. Well, describe it a little more, because you were telling us this the other night, like you would just, every night you would just pull off on the side of the road and you would hide your Vespa and describe that a little more. Yeah, well, that was true. Uh, when, you, when one is traveling in, in faraway places and you don't know much about the ro- local culture, you m- sort of have to assume the worst is possible. Uh, the idea of stopping alongside of the road and sleeping where one could see my, my Vespa in this case uh, was a little frightening because you never knew who might come along and decide that you were easy pickings for one reason or another. Uh, so, yes, during the late afternoon, I would usually try to find a spot that I thought would be safe where I could pull a few hundred yards off the highway or highway, no, road. None of this, a lot of it was gravel. Um, and then I would go and make my dinner or perhaps uh, eat in a local town. And then after dark, head out to this place that I had found where I could get off the road and where no headlights would alight my camping spot. I guess I told you once that I put up my tent in a nice little clearing that was out in the middle of the uh, of a marshy spot um, in the middle of the night. The earth started trembling, and I realized that the water hole I was next to was where the water buffaloes came to drink. And I, my decision was quick, but it was either do I stay in the tent and hope they don't trample it, or do I get out? And I decided I better get out because the, t- the tent with a zipper closure might be very difficult to exit if I was being trampled. Uh, <laughs> it, it came out that there was no great uh, problem, but 20 water buffaloes within five feet of your tent and, and snorting and making a lot of noise did, did wake me very quickly, I can say. Now tell about how you did your grocery shopping while on the road. Oh, yes, well... When you're penniless uh, and you have to stop, let's say, uh, to urinate along the road and there's nobody there and there are 20 miles of beet fields, uh, reaching down and pulling a beet out didn't seem like much of a problem. <laughs> and further, maybe uh, 10 miles further, there might be uh, corn being grown and again the farmer nowhere in sight because of the grand spaces that were there and the ear of corn would go well with the beat with the beat and that would be your supper and when you stopped it a little further along and uh, I had a little uh, little tiny affordable uh, stove a little butane stove mm. that I used uh, very very small and not very good for many things but you could boil water over it, uh, and that was generally all I needed to prepare whatever I was eating. So, uh, what what this is making me recall is um, your other nephew, my cousin, Francois, is one of my Belgian cousins. So, he did something quite similar. Um, 
I don't know how old he was, in his 20s or 30s? He was 20s, same also, 22, 23 at that time. he and two buddies, they shipped, they flew over to Mumbai or Bombay or something? Bombay, I think, yeah. With mountain bikes Mm -hmm. and biked back to Belgium. Across China. (laughs) Across China. A prolonged portion of it. Insane. So I remember asking Francois, I said, what was the scariest moment and i really thought he would say something about a weird interaction with people um uh, first of all he said the he said that he said that um almost everybody especially out in the middle east would want to invite you in their home and they would feed him and you would use sign language or he would have a little booklet with images to say like hey i need this which i guess you say like point at water point at a food point at bathroom i don't know but um he said he did some of what you were kind of camping out and whatnot. He broke away from the other guys at some point. And what he said to me, which I was really surprised, is he said in Turkey, there was some, I don't know, mountainous or wooded area, some kind of wilderness area where a ranger came to him while he was camping and, and like gave him this intense um, warning about these bears there. And that that was that night or something was like the scariest point of the whole trip. I was kind of surprised by that. And something else he said that I found that was quite enlightening is that the closer they got back home into Europe and to Belgium, the um, the hospitality would would um, shed away. So uh, and of course they're becoming dirtier and dirtier as they approach you know, Europe, months and months and months on a bicycle, they're, they're like ragged and filthy by the time they're almost home. But they said he said that hospitality really um, kind of fell by the wayside once you got closer to Europe. I've found very much the same uh, uh, hospitality amongst people in the rural areas uh, was enormous. I think even more hospitable when they realized that you were a stranger that was largely ignorant of the, the surroundings, and they wanted to teach you a little bit about mm. it. Um, one of my uh, moments on that particular trip, I was in Greece, and I went up, I hiked up a small, uh, I would say mountain, but it's probably a little less large than that. Beautiful view. I got up there, but up at the top, there was a sheep herder, and he was it was late late afternoon he was cooking his evening meal and i stopped and we talked well we talked but he spoke greek and i spoke a couple of different options in english or dutch or french of which he had no understanding at all but nonetheless we had a very long 45 minutes mm. of very cordial relationship he shared his food with me and we talked and we made uh, we figured out where we both lived and what we both did and so forth mm. it was very, very amusing uh, mm. and, and interesting but many times uh, when I wanted to camp along the road, people would say, well, come to the house. Uh, mm. uh, we just lived down the, the road. And I would join them, mm. sometimes in a, in a bedroom with six or eight other people. Uh, mm. The houses were often very small and very rural. Mm. Uh, everybody sleeping on mattresses on the floor, and, uh, but willing to share their space with mm. one. Uh, 
being an, an American, if you, one told them that, that you had, uh, were from the U.S., uh, they would enjoy that. Most of them thought that that was a very interesting and uh, applaud the fact that uh, the U.S. was a, a interesting and good, good country. Mm. Uh, one might find that different today in some areas of the world, mm. but... So, and only in the past few days have I quite understood the the depth of this, but um, that was just the beginning of your world travels that you, through your work, you said yet last night that you've been to a, over a hundred countries. My, one of my, two, two of my grandchildren were trying to count to amuse themselves how many, they got to something on the order of 110, 108, 110 but the problem was that they couldn't t tie it down particularly because I had been, for instance, the USSR, mm -hmm. Soviet Russia, uh, but when it was Russia. And then later I went back and visited uh, the various of the Russian-Soviet mm -hmm. countries, which at that time had been Russia and were now uh, in, the, in Kazakhstan or so you Uzbekistan. Get extra and you get it wasn't extra clear points. whether that was another country you now yeah. or we were double counting. Yeah. The same thing, I was just talking about going through Yugoslavia. Uh, was it that I also visit Serbia or not? Uh, you know, or do you count both or not? So it was rather amusing to see that quite a few of the places I had been had been changed, either changed in name or changed in, in shape and uh, certainly in political dimensions. Um, and so um, you, um, you and my aunt and my cousins, when they were very little, or I think some weren't even born yet, you lived in Ethiopia and to name one of a handful of places. Mm -hmm. Now you told us a story the other night. I think back to what I kind of started talking about is I find hunting cultures in different parts of the world extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. You told us a really awesome, uh, really interesting little story about um, um, a man that you met while you were out snipe hunting. Um, could you retell that? What, first of all, what country was that? It's, it was Ethiopia. It was in Ethiopia. Um, and tell a little bit it, about some of the indigenous... Ta start by talking about how you told us about when you would go for a picnic, some of the indigenous people that lived in the area. Yeah. As an, and who were they? Do you know uh, the names of the tr any of the tribes or anything? Well, the, yeah, there are different... are, are indeed different groupings in, in, the, in the country. The Eritreans at one end... Uh, so you have the Eritreans, you have the Amarans, and then further south you have the nomadic tribes uh, that are considered by most of the people in Ethiopia as animals, not as human beings. Uh, interesting, for instance, uh, I was in charge of doing surveys at one point of school children because we were trying to expand the education system. And we sent out some of the students from the local university, Haile Selassie University. When I say local, it was the only university, of course, in the country. And they would come back with their paperwork, having gone out to some of these villages and uh, taking the census. And then I would check against what I knew of these places. And in some places they would come and they obviously had undercounted because I just physically knew that there were more people there. And they would say, oh, yeah, no, we lost some of our paperwork. And so, you know, the census obviously wasn't very exact. Um, but in another place where I knew there were quite a few people, 
uh, and this is what I was talking about, the nomads, the uh, tribe down there, they came back with very few uh, inhabitants. And I questioned them. I said, that can't be. I know that. And after talking a little bit, I realized, yes, I said, oh, no, we don't count those. They're not people. Those are animals. They were the nomads, and they were considered wow. to, by the university students to be non-human. Wow. So, so between the between the cultures in Africa, in, Afri in, Ethiopia, in Ethiopia, the different groups, the different uh, regional groups and the way that their lifestyle is different, one being more... Yeah. I don't know what word nomadic. You use. Nomadic. Yeah. Yeah. They they considered each other, or one mm -hmm. one way to the other. They didn't even consider them people. Yeah. Wow. Well, you, yeah, often well, that when, gives you an idea of where you're standing. Now, when I was there, the, this is around 1970. And who were the nomads? Was it a were they the Maasai? Or how do you? No, they were not the uh, Maasai. It was not like in Kenya. But I, I I don't for the moment remember the name. I would maybe give it to you at some point. But at any rate. Uh, they were very, very poor people, mm -hmm. uh, very uh, just subsistence. I mean, mm -hmm. most of Ethiopia was subsistence anyway, mm -hmm. but these weren't even farmers, so subsistence was even worse for them. Very dry area of the country, uh, almost no vegetation at all mm -hmm. down there. Um, yes. Do you, so do you know uh, what those people were eating? Uh, no. I, uh, not much, I can uh -huh. assure you of that. Uh, no, one of the, I, I told you some of the uh, customs, I think, or the way people react are different in different countries, of course. And the first time that my wife and myself and our two very young children, uh, one two years old and one uh, still a babe in arms, we would, wanted to picnic and we went to a really a spot very pretty up in the mountains above Addis Ababa, uh, 10 or 15 miles from the city itself. Uh, nothing in view but one small village about a, perhaps a mile away with 10 or 12 huts. Now these are, they built everything in wattle, wattle being uh, sticks uh, intertwined and then covered with mud at the bottom and then of course straw roofs always circular everything was circular there's never any right angles if you flew over the the, the little tiny tiny villages it was always interesting to note that there was never anything with a right angle from mm. the sky uh, but we put out a uh, our little tarp and put the the picnic basket there and we started to sit down no sooner had we sat comfortably and started to eat our sandwiches then about 25 some young and some elderly people arrived from the village they had seen us stop our car and were curious um, they would stand with their toes where they were barefoot and very little scanty clothing they would stand with their toes right at the edge of the tarp, all four sides, three and four deep, so that you felt you were in a chasm and you could see the sky, but nothing other than knees and belts and, and, and people standing there. And they found this perfectly acceptable, whereas we, with our sense of 
my space and your space mm-hmm. would feel very, un- and we did feel very uncomfortable. Claustrophobic, <laughs> extremely claustrophobic. And we- an introvert's an introvert's worst nightmare. You know, I'm obviously, as you know, very interested in American history more so now than ever. Reading a lot of books about. Um, you know, the different tribes of America and, and all the settlers. And one thing is fascinating is when you hear accounts of, um, of what life was like inside a lodge or a teepee. And often people are sleeping shoulder to, like a missionary would go out with some tribe mm-hmm. and everyone's sleeping shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just thinking like, man, how did an introvert get by back in the day? Mm-hmm. I, or, or, you know, even back, you know, medieval Europe, your whole family sleeping in one bed, your, your, your wife, your kids, maybe your mom. Mm-hmm. It's like, how did, I don't know what introverts have been doing for centuries and centuries. That's a bit of a tangent. But. <laughs> I, I go, starting on a tangent, I think I've told you also about the Dutch. They, their families were all agricultural for many mm-hmm. centuries, and, and in, at least outside the major cities. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Dutch house that is built always out of brick and with a thatched roof mm-hmm. was almost identical everywhere one went in the country the door would be on the front to the left would be the living room to the right would be a little room which was two steps up from the rest of the house two mm-hmm. steps up uh, behind the living room was the kitchen and that would be the house behind the kitchen was where the stable for the cows was. Mm. And since the cows were inside of that back room, if you like, uh, the house was heated largely by their uh, humidity of the cows no. during the winter. Are you serious? Uh, no, absolutely. And the other curious thing about that is that when you had more children, you would build a house behind the first house. And then the third house would be behind that. And the, then behind that, because the, Plots of ground were generally very long and not very narrow. Uh, the ditches, of course, what they call the slopes between the various meadows, divided up uh, one set of meadows from another. Um, now, the, so the family that that we played with that lived across the street from where I lived when I was that was twelve years old. Uh, they had 19 kids, mm. and he came, the husband came from a family of 24, <laughs> and the wife came from a family of 29. <laughs> and, of course, the reason for all of these children is that there were no th- such things as slaves uh, in, in the country, consequently, and, and no forms of energy other than human energy, and you needed a big family to farm your fields and to take care of your cows. Uh, and talk about large, that is large. That, uh, that's astonishing. I've never heard it get into the 20 days. The other little story about all of that is that because family, having a large family was important, that a f- female who was not fertile was not a prospective wife. Mm. And to test this out, the custom back in the 1600s was that the young gal, when she got of marriage age, around 15 or 16 or so, would be moved from the upstairs attic where everybody slept to the what was called the upkammer, the up 
room, which was the one right to the right of that front door, which had a small window in it, which was about the height of a uh, somebody's um, a person's chin. So you could get into it if you wanted to, if somebody were to help you with a hand. The girl, when she was of marriageable age, would be allowed to sleep in that room, and she was allowed to receive nightly visitors through her little window at her preference. And once she became pregnant, she was allowed to pick of any of those persons that might have gone through that window in the previous period of time, she would select one of them as her husband. Are you serious? I am absolutely serious. And that was how they knew that the wife was able to have children, which was so in, in, in important in that particular custom, because without children, you could not run a farm properly. Yes, you look surprised. So, so tons <laughs> of people in Holland must not know their real dads. Yes. Oh, in that time period. Well, yes, in the 1600s. Oh, no, maybe, maybe the young lady had only let one person in. And of she course. might have been very sure. selective. Sure. Or to the contrary. Wow. She might have been also helping herself choose what she was interested in. Who knows? Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I love that. I love when I talk to you hearing these little historical <laughs> little tidbits like that. That's astonishing. Um, going going back to uh, Ethiopia, yes, <laughs> we were on the the the, the tarp with the people mm -hmm. standing us around us, and you you started asking me all of that because hunting experiences. Mm -hmm. um, I had gone up there with somebody who had hunted before. Uh, he was uh, somebody in the embassy in the Dutch embassy. Matter of fact, I think it was the ambassador himself, and he and I did a little bit of hunting, but not very much. And his hunting was to stop the car if there were geese, there were geese that migrated down into that part of the world. Uh, and he would, with a rifle, shoot a goose and then go over and pick it up and bring it back. Not very exciting hunting, mm -hmm. I'm afraid, and not mm -hmm. anything that interested me especially. But I did go back because I had heard that there were snipe to shoot, which was much more interesting. I prefer of anything bird hunting, although I will take a deer when I am hungry enough to do that. Um, Can you describe the snipe a little bit? Because I wasn't too. I had a vague idea what it was. Well, but. you see, you see snipe along this in this country along the seashore, and they dart back and forth where the where the waves come up along the shore. Are well, they one of those sandpiper-type birds? They're sandpiper-types okay. of birds, exactly. Okay. Uh, for hunting birds, uh, the woodcock is something that would be close here in this country. The a woodcock is a little larger, a little tiny oh, really? bit larger than the really? snipe, but not much. And a beautiful little creature. Yeah, very close to the same. So the first time I went up, I wanted to hunt, and... It wasn't the same village, but the villagers arrived and carrying a gun and having 20 people swarming around you, a uh, very dangerous situation trying to hunt. So that was a, a zero I had. And I was about to leave when, lo and behold, a, an adult. But, uh, but you said that the 20 people that surrounded you, they were all kids. 
Not all. Okay. A mixture of things. Okay. And then came a person carrying a big stick, and he started hollering in Amharic, of which I knew about six words probably, to telling them to get out of the way, and he would swing that stick, and he hit one or two of them pretty hard. Hitting children was perfectly acceptable <laughs> in those days, I'll tell you. Uh, this is 1970s? In 71, 72, yeah, in those years. For instance, when I was visiting schools, because that was my job at the time, I would get to one of these village schools where there were 20 huts and probably uh, 20 kids uh, to, in, in the school, and they would all be in one school building, which was one round hut, uh, and they might have a skin on a sort of a bench on one side for the teacher to sit on, and the kids would all squat. And behind the kids would always be the oldest kid, probably 16 years old, and he would carry a stick. And when the teacher was teaching, if any of the kids started to squirm or not pay attention, he would hit them. And I mean bludgeon them. Uh, it would, I, I would wince when it happened. Those poor kids were getting hit. And that was, that was his job. And it was <laughs> perfectly acceptable to everybody. And yes, once one of the times when I was in there, I would I sat on the skins that were the formed mm. the bench, and I regretted it because the minute I got out of there, I realized that I was full of fleas, full of fleas. No <laughs> way. Oh yeah, awful. <laughs> wow. Do you know what it was? It was sand fleas. No, no. Do you know what kind of creature the skin was? And oh, and, they were goat skins. And uh, and was it not tanned yet or something? Yeah, it's just a raw tanned. hide. Yeah, raw hide. They've been, been scraped, but not not tanned. And oh, so, wow. Anyway, uh, but to go back to the hunting. So the uh, the man who was was with me chased everybody away and started to show me where to walk and sure indeed we started kicking up the the uh, the snipe which i was shooting now you realize Addis Ababa is at almost 9000 feet and i was about 2000 feet above that on the plains very high plains below the really big mountains so we were up about 11000 feet uh, having been in the in Addis for a few months already I had already adjusted to the altitude, didn't bother me, and I was in my, what was I then, uh, early 30s, pretty good shape. The normal way to, to hunt a snipe would be with a pointing dog, mm. and you would walk across an area where you think they're feeding, and the dog would work left and right in ahead of you and would go on point when you got near to a snipe. You would walk up close to the dog, and as you approached, the snipe would probably flush mm. and and fly off, and you would then try your shot. You might flush two or three at a time simultaneously mm. because they are a bird that tends to stay with, along with, with others in a flock. Uh, and their dog would then go and do the re retrieve and bring it bring it, the bird back to you. Um, now, what did you think you would do in Ethiopia? Well, I had never done this before anywhere, although mm. I sort of know vaguely what peop how people hunt them. Uh, so he, I didn't have a dog, of course, and so we were just walking across. And he knew uh, from living right there more or less where the snipe were feeding, uh, and we would go along, and they would jump. As you approach them, they hear you coming, and 
15 or 20 yards away, they would launch into the air. Now, this area here was, as I said, 2,000 feet higher than Addis Ababa, and it's almost perfectly level, except for a few peaks, which are the mountain range that goes up higher. But at the foothills, it's like a llano, what it's called in South Africa, and the, the plains. Mm. And, uh, so and this and the grass is ankle high, maybe mm. just a touch higher than that, and green in the in when the, in the mm. rainy season. Uh, so there's no brush, there are no trees. It's very open shooting, and for a shooter, that makes life very easy. And indeed, one would need to be cautious that you don't just go go on a spree because you could probably shoot a hundred of them if you wanted to go. Uh, I usually would go up there and shoot six and possibly eight. Uh, two would be, uh, uh, three would be a meal for my, my my wife and myself. So if you saw six, you were going to have two evenings of pleasure. We're being interrupted by a cowbird. A cowbird, as you know, he's feeding right here on the feeder to our right, about 20 feet from us. This is a bird that I detest. It attacks the nests of other birds and throws their eggs out, breaking them, including when there's little embryos inside. And then they lay their eggs in that nest and let the other bird uh, brood on them and hatch those eggs for themselves. It's a mean trick. This, and I told you because you said a little bit about them yesterday and I told you it instantaneously reminded me in fairy tales I would think like Grimm's there's a motif of the changeling and the changeling is when you know some young family out in some fairy tale rural place has a child and then one night one morning they wake up and they look at their child and they say there's something a little strange about our kid and in the night, some imp has come in and switched out their kid. And that's what a changeling is. So these damn cowbirds are doing changelings with so do they basically do that to all the other all the other songbirds? Pretty much all of them. I would assume that they don't do it for the very, very small nests mm. because there's not enough ability to put mm. a, put a couple of eggs in it because they generally lay three or four mm. uh, and they're there's almost the size of a robin, isn't that what you'd see yeah, when yeah. you look at it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So their eggs, of course, are small relative to hen's eggs, but nonetheless larger than some of the tiny birds. You know. The the cowbird does have a very cool call, though. It sounds like a little, almost like a cell phone. It's like, it sounds like a little pager or something. So uh, while we're talking about eating birds, so uh, when you brought up the cowbird, I was saying... You know, I haven't looked into the regulations yet, but I think um, some of the invasive birds, you're, are, there's like, they're kind of looked at as, um, as like varmint. Like, there's no, there's not really a rule with like groundhogs. There's mm -hmm. no groundhog season. If you can shoot a groundhog. So I, I know with like starlings and some of these invasives that are like really destructive on other birds, there's mm -hmm. not really any mm -hmm. rules. And I was thinking like, you know, I'm very interested. I look at like old medieval paintings of hunting and whatnot and Arabic um, artwork of hunting 
in ancient times. And you'll see like people with like nets catching birds or like bird trapping. And I thought like, wow, if this is an invasive bird and you're allowed to do this, wouldn't it be amazing to get some of these little, these little starlings and make one of these like medieval pies, the little bird pie. Five and 20 blackbirds in a pie. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Hey, wouldn't that be incredible to try in 2022 to have this like, this, this little king's pie of songbirds? Um, uh, Somehow I wouldn't select the starlings. They don't look as edible to me. I would, uh, I would go for food, probably to a rob, robin or something along that line. I don't think you're allowed to but do that. No, you don't want to shoot robins. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. So awesome tangent. Um, I enjoy this tangent very much. So let's get back. So you were trying to get this snipe. You are in Ethiopia. You've met this man who you're not quite sure what he's up to. He's swinging his stick at, at the kids and people of all ages. Carry on with that. I, I learned from him that his name is Bru. I still remember that. I do not remember that he ever gave me a family name. Uh, and you would address him there as Ato Bru because Ato means Mister or is a gentle, not necessarily high title, but just a polite way of addressing an Ethiopian male. Um, so Otto Beru uh, suggested that I come back in sign language between the two of us, uh, his Amharic and my English, uh, neither of us competent at any, to any more than three words of the other's language. And he explained that I should bring a rope with me next time about and from here to there and that looked like about 30 yards or so maybe 60 feet or 100 feet of rope i had no clue as to what this was going to do no no are you almost playing charades yes you know he's literally you're trying to like with oh, your hands absolutely convey uh, the message it, we're, you're talking it's all hands and, and uh, trying to discuss things uh, I, I will say I have been very good over the years because I've had to do that so many times in so many different languages uh, that you begin, you understand a little bit how to make moves that are uh, obvious to anybody, whatever their language is, that you don't, you're not speaking in words. Indeed, you get me to deviate. I was sitting on a bench in Sweden, uh, in Malmö, Sweden, and in a park and reading a book. And there was suddenly a little girl that came to play in the park. And she came up to me curiously. It was probably seven years old or so, uh, wondering what I was doing, so to speak. And I was obviously a stranger to her. And she spoke to me in Swedish. And I couldn't understand her. And this totally perplexed her. She had no concept that there was people that didn't speak Swedish. An never, adult, and an adult Never especially. run into one before. So I started trying to uh, communicate with her, and she understood, I made her understand, I'm mean, speaking English, that I was not able to speak Swedish. And she began to wow at that, but nonetheless understood it. And then I pointed to myself and gave my name, 
And then I tried to get her to give me her name, and that took a little while, but then she understood, and she told me her name, and it went on. But I am I, amused at how difficult it is. So to come back to the hunting, Baru. Uh, I arrived maybe a week or two later, uh, parked again uh, half a mile or a mile from the village where I had met him the first time, and waited, and sure enough, in a few minutes, I, he appeared uh, coming across the, uh, the veldt uh, uh, to me. And then he w- had brought with him two young boys, five, six, seven years old. And he started to place them, gave, gave him the rope. He gave one end to one boy and one end to the other, and they moved left and right of us. And then he said, they're going to walk out there, giving signals of how they're going to walk, and that they would be dragging the piece of rope. Now, if it was 100 feet long, they were about 75, 80 yards apart, and the rope formed an oval behind them, a semicircle behind them, and they would walk across the grass, and the rope would therefore move along between them. And I would be told to stand directly behind the middle of the rope. And as it progressed across the felt, I was to follow it. And certainly that certainly worked because every time you got within maybe 10 or 15 feet of a, of a snipe, he could hear that rope coming behind him and it would scare him enough so that he would flush. Uh, made shooting very easy. Uh, indeed, if I were to miss one, Baru would uh, kind of uh, point at me and make a little mockery sign that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but I did get very good on them. I could often shoot uh, uh, six, seven right in a row when, without having to miss any and be done with the day's hunt very quickly. Indeed, sometimes it was felt a little too, too quickly, but you didn't want to go, go on uh, shooting. Uh, so that was uh, very open. Now, when you shoot grouse in New Hampshire or in Maine, where I've hunted a lot, not so much in, in Vermont, um, trying to see the bird is generally the real problem. Mm. So with snipe, you, one saw the bird all the time because there was mm. no, no cover for them. But the difficulty in shooting grouse is that although you hear them very well, you may only get a flash here and there as so they move through the trees. So, you know, we moved to Appalachia proper in right. West Virginia, and right. I've busted them up about five times. Um, and it's always a startle. It's like a commotion. Yeah. Yeah. The, the grouse are really cool. Yeah. I had never really seen them. They're not here. They're, they're a little further in Virginia. I have seen them right on the border in the yeah. mountains. Yeah. But um, very cool creature. No, when they, as you well know, when they burst from the ground, if you've never heard one before, you do jump. And oh, even, yeah. even when you heard them all the time. But, oh, yeah. But it is the, the, the moment that you bring your gun up. The trouble is you still don't know often which way to point it because the grouse may go straight away, but may also go left or right. Mm. No, and it takes a moment to focus on one. So the, the very difficult shooting, whereas the sniper was indeed very, very easy. Um, um, but I think as with most hunters, I'm more concerned about uh, 
maintaining the ability of the creatures that were hunting or even not hunting were conserv conservationists, all mm -hmm. of us, mm -hmm. uh, here on the property, 250 acres. I will allow myself three deer a year. And there are then generally about 18 or 20 that live here. I don't want to shoot more because I want to keep the herd alive. Uh, actually shooting less is probably not a good thing either because allowing the herd to get too large is going to graze off any, any uh, winter f food that mm. they're going to be able to find. Mm. Um, so yes, I, I know some people don't like hunting, but mm. uh, it is, if done properly, is also the conservationist oh, yeah. <laughs> handle. Um, where do we go from here? Well, hey, we could read one of your stories. That was just an awesome background all about some of your life. It's been great living vicariously through you as you've uh, explored the world and met different cultures. I always find that fascinating. All right. Uh, I read from... So, to, so here, um, you're going to read... So you've written a handful of books. Um, you've one, written one of poetry. You've written one about some of your family history. You being a baby escaping World War II, yeah? Very much like the Ukrainians running now from Putin. My family, we were running from Hitler. And very, very exciting story of our escape. And you, you were literally a baby being, um, you know... I was three years old. Okay, three. I couldn't quite remember. was the savior of my family because when we were crossing the last of the uh, borders trying to flee Hitler, there was a blacklist that was published for the border guards. And my father was list, a list on that. Shot on sight was the instruction given for anybody on that list. And, and your father was on the list because your father was a soldier, a Dutch, yeah? Dutch uh, lieutenant. A, a lieutenant. Uh, and had defended the uh, Hrebeberg, the mountain that, that defends most of that part of uh, Holland. Um, at any rate, the guard had apparently had a grandson killed in the First World War, and he was an elder uh, uh, and not a Nazi, as it appeared, but although he was a soldier. Not everybody in Germany was Nazis. Almost everybody from 16 to 30 was a Nazi because uh, Hitler had, had his Hitler Youth mm. Brigade trained for a dozen years. He took the 20-year-olds and they formed sort of a Boy Scout group called the Hitler Youth. Mm -hmm. uh, and initially that Boy Scout group was just uh, tenting and camping. But it, as it progressed, they started marching with wooden guns. And mm -hmm. uh, So by the time they got to be 20, they were carrying guns. And over this 10 or 12 year period between uh, 1930, let's say, and 1938, 1928 to 1938, this Hitler youth had been moved from a group of 10 and 12 year olds 
to a contingent of 18 to 22 or 24 year olds and who were the soldiers mm -hmm. that he used in the Second World War. He had uh, brainwashed and, mm -hmm. and developed them uh, that way. Many of the Germans were not Nazis, particularly the older ones were not very supportive. Uh, however, not being a Nazi was very dangerous and consequently most people bowed to the necessity. Anyway, uh, the book describes very clearly uh, how we managed to get across that particular border. And it was in part because as a young child, I recognized the Nazi uh, uh, Air Force patch that was on the soldier's uh, uniform. And he was amused that I uh, was able to see that patch and knew, knew what it was. And also that I knew something about the airplanes. We had little toy airplanes, my brother and myself, that were uh, duplicates of the real ones that the Germans were using. And the fact that he had been an aviator flying some of those planes amused him. And the fact that he had lost somebody about my age as a grandson at the end of World War I mm. uh, also brought some... Uh, uh, <laughs> compassion uh, mm. to him as, as and he led us through and your dad was supposed to have been shot right there all four of us would have been shot you right would have there. all been Absolutely. executed they didn't want it would have been you did not, it would have been you your what? dad your mom and one and who and your sister or? a brother and a sister so five of you five would of have us been executed right would there. have been executed right do there. you remember this I know that I was... No, do you remember, like, the memory of that yes. encounter with that man? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, know, I remember the, on the flight a half a dozen images, and that was one. Wow. Uh, of course, later in the war, when I was five, six, seven, eight, nine, when we were in the Dutch West Indies, where my father was transferred to defend Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao, uh, that I remember all. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was... Uh, Yes, yeah, I've read I've read your book, um, mm -hmm. obviously. And um, um, before we talk about to go a little further on what we're talking about right now, before we get into this book mm -hmm. that's more nature related, um, do you remember at all your parents' reaction, like the minutes or days after this mini miracle? Yeah. Do you know how did uh, they? Absolutely. Well, they my mother almost passed out when we got across to the to these. Uh, to the Swiss uh, frontier when we were let in there. My father had to carry her for a while. She was just totally emotionally exhausted. <laughs> and you can even hear from my voice now that I still remember that. Yeah. Uh, very scary. <sighs> very scary. As we were walking between the two uh, sets of tables, the one on one side of a bridge where the Germans were letting you in or not, uh, and the Swiss side, which was about uh, 80 yards away, probably, my father whispered to us, do not turn and look back. Mm. He said that for two reasons. One, he thought looking back would make us look guilty, perhaps. Mm. But more, he was still concerned that this was a setup. And he'd be shot. That they were letting us go, and then they could just simply shoot us and state that it was escapees that, that were there. 
uh, and that would then end the matter. They didn't want to arrest you because just so your it. dad didn't want you to turn and see the potential the, of of your the rifle to be leveled, killed. leveled at you. Yeah. Oh mm. my God! You can see I still tense up. <laughs> so okay, uh, go on to more. Uh, that is, I mean, I feel emotionally like welling up. My eyes are welling up hearing that story. It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to hear you tell it. Um, yeah, that is absolutely harrowing. So, and your newest book you have so written. That, that book was called We Escaped, A Family's Flight from Holland During World War II. Anybody can look it up, just either my name or just Google that. It'll come up. This book that I'm holding now that you'd like me to read from mm -hmm. is a book of short stories. Uh, it's called The Call of the Allagash Wilderness. And I think earlier here we've been talking about the Allagash River and the canoe trip that I took on that. Uh, that is one of the stories in this uh, book. Uh, it's just a day-by-day -day account when you were talking about what one thinks about when one mm -hmm. is alone for seven or eight days and mm -hmm. sees nobody else, that's the, the this the story recounts exactly what was happening, what I was thinking about, of course. The fire was dying. He picked up the few remaining half-burned twigs and placed them over the fading embers, careful not to burn his fingers. The bits of driftwood he had collected and not used he threw into the woods, each piece in a different direction. When the rocks were clean, cleared of the unused debris, he resumed his attention to the fire. He pushed dying embers and ashes together, coaxing them into a tongue of flame, wanting to burn them away in order to leave no sign of his passing. He looked up, surveyed the lake. From where he squatted near the tip of the peninsula, he could see a great deal of its five-mile length. But given the lake's shape, three long arms joining in the middle, he couldn't see it all. He scanned across the water for any sign of life. He had been watching a half dozen loons feeding. They had moved a few hundred yards. It took a minute or two to spot them again. They spent more time underwater than on the surface. Any boats? He hadn't seen any yesterday or this morning. At first he thought there were none. That pleased him. A wink of light off to the southeast caught his eye. A reflection? Of what? He squinted. The far shore was a mile or so away. Hard to make out anything at that distance. Again, a wink of light. He tried to focus. There, low on the water, all but invisible against the shoreline. Dark green, perhaps black. Most visible was the lump at one end. A canoe with a single paddler, trolling a fly, probably, as he had been doing. But for the flash of sunlight on Wet's paddle, he wouldn't have spotted him. 
He'd started fishing just before dawn. He'd been at it for a couple of hours. No hits. Hungry, he had paddled in to make a fire. He had beached the canoe on the tumble of naked rocks between the tangle of bushes in the water. After Labor Day, the dam here on Nesadwenek was lowered a foot. A week later, a canoe length of rocks lined the shore below the summer waterline. Granite, boulders and stones, hunks of the Canadian shield. He had arranged four flat rocks into a makeshift fireplace right on the edge of the water. The largest rock he had laid flat side up. On that, he had built the fire. The other three rocks he had set on edge, one left, one right, and one at the back. They would reflect the heat. More importantly, they hid the flames from anyone on the lake. He had built a teepee of twigs on the flat rock, had placed a roll of dry birch bark under the teepee and lit it. As the birch bark and then the twigs flared, he had fed the blaze with sticks no thicker than his thumb, all shorter than the blade of his sheath knife. He wanted just enough fire to toast a single slice of bread. He had no wish to wait all morning for a large cook fire to blaze, burn, and then die. With his knife, he had cut a small branch from a shrub, 12 inches or so below where two twigs branched out, forming a V. He pulled off the leaves, placed a slice of bread on the sprig of the twig, and held it over the flame. When the first side was blackened, he turned the bread over. The toasting created a crisp texture and a smoking flavor. He'd been hungry. The bread was good. He considered another slice, but decided against it. He would be gone for a week. He'd save the rest of the bread for later. He looked again across the water for the canoe. At first he couldn't spot it. Then he picked it up again. It was trolling in the other direction, trolling back to where it had been, going back and forth along a particularly productive short line. Other than the canoe, there was no sign of habitation on the lake. Further along on the far shoreline, around a spit of land and out of sight from where he stood, he had spied a group of four tiny cabins yesterday, a rustic hunting and fishing lodge, empty for the moment. The summer season over. Other than that, the lake was pristine. The paper company was stingy about the land, at least on these northern Maine lakes. The twigs were burned out. He gingerly picked up the three rocks that made the sides of the campfire. They were warm, but no longer hot enough to burn his finger. He threw first one and then the two others into the lake. He splashed water onto the flat rock on which he'd built the fire. It sizzled as the water droplets turned to steam. After a few handfuls, the rock and the ashes were cold to his touch. He turned the rock over to hide the blackened surface and slid the stone into the water. Carefully, he looked over the site. One or two remaining broken twigs, out of place on the rocks. He threw them into the brush. He wanted to ensure that when he moved on, no sign of his presence would remain. To the careful eye, of course, there was always a sign, a blackened stone, a depression in the leaves, broken twigs, but at this site, it would be all but impossible to note any sign of his passing. Satisfied, he looked once more for the canoe across the lake. A minute or more went by before he spotted it.
The glint of sun on the wet paddle betrayed it again. The canoe had removed from where it had been trolling. It was further downwind. He scanned the surface of the lake for other boats. None. That pleased him. He checked that his rod was ready in his boat and then slid the canoe onto the water. Silently he paddled, keeping to the shadow of the shore. Further out, one could easily be spotted. By staying close to the shoreline, one faded into near invisibility. From the water, he looked back to where he'd built the fire. Above the jumble of naked rocks between the lapping waves and the brush, it was if someone had traced a chalk line horizontally along the black granite stones. It marked the summer water line. Behind that, thick shrubs, alder in the main, some unproductive wild blueberry bushes, and then the primary cover of the northern Maine wilderness, birch down low, spruce above it, cut hard by the paper companies. The shoreline behind this lake crouched low all around. No tall trees. This cut-over Canadian shield extended from Mount Katahdin northward forever. South of the lake, a group of four small mountains with a fifth peak, by far the largest and almost perfectly conical from this vantage point, marched west to east toward Mount Katahdin, where other followers already arrived, knelt around the high peak in homage. The mountains saved the lake from losing itself in that monotony of the northern backwoods, saved the lake from desolation. He moved slowly, enjoying the sun on his face and soaking in the view. He usually paddled off his left hip, but with the breeze from that side, he had the paddle to starboard. It made it easier to maintain a straight course. Small swirls drifted astern as he dipped and pulled. He watched as the string of swirls receded in his wake. It took but a moment for them to disappear, thereby erasing all signs of his passing. It was why he preferred canoeing to hiking. No matter how careful one might be, hiking left a trail. He searched the lake again for the fisherman he had seen earlier, but could not spot him. He had apparently gone elsewhere. He let the canoe drift, watched as the loons dived and resurfaced. The wavelets against the shore murmured. The sun sparkled on the water. It was a perfect day in the northern Maine wilderness. In this moment, there was no place on earth he would rather be. So that story definitely plays into some of the stuff we started talking to at the beginning, just that ta- feeling, that timelessness. And I guess for you, wanting to, uh, wanting to, I guess, preserve that beauty that you're feeling for others. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful. The, will, the ability to touch this earth and leave it untouched. Mm. Mm. Very beautiful, very beautiful. Nice thought, huh? Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, you've said very, you said a handful of profound things over the few, past few days, which I found um, quite fascinating. Um, maybe we'll talk about that as we kind of wrap up here, but um, maybe you'll end with the raccoon story. Since uh, that's I want to get on to a couple of those stories, yeah. The, 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 the animals, you know, yes. you, you see them. Occasionally up in, in New Hampshire, I would find a a fox doing turns in the gutter. And of course, 
he was rabid, and I would go back to the house and get myself a 22 and go back and shoot him, and then call the game warden and tell him where he was. Uh, you don't want to get in to touch them. Those are the sad things, of course, uh, but that does happen. But when we were talking about invasive species there a little bit earlier, another thought occurred to me that uh, when I was a boy in New Hampshire there, uh, there was still a bounty on porcupines. They were considered to be uh, awful creatures because they ruined some of the lumber trees with eating the, the bark of them. And uh, if you shot one, you would cut off the no, no, nose, not too much else because of, because of the needles. <laughs> and you would take it to the uh, uh, game warden and you would get 50 cents per nose of a porcupine. Uh, that was a bounty. Nowadays, there's a bounty on coyotes up there. Those did not exist in New Hampshire when I was a boy. Now they have come across and are plentiful, and they are trapped, and there is a bounty on them. Um, but the stories we were going to tell... My sister, right near where I lived, had an f- old farm, and she had a great big barn uh, there. And in the barn, at one point, was a family of raccoons. The raccoons can be very, very dirty, and they had been camping in her barn for some months, and it stunk to high heaven. She hadn't been able to get rid of them. Um, but this was being the autumn, probably month of October or so, uh, maybe into November. She called me up and said, Alex, please come and help me. The raccoons are in a tree. I think you could shoot them. So I took my 22 and drove over there. It wasn't too far away. And sure enough, there was an apple tree, an old apple tree. Uh, and up in the top of it, there were three, four, one, two, three, four raccoons all feeding on apples. Now, these apples had been frozen and unfrozen a few hundred times or at least tens of times in the, in the fall uh, 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 frosts and freezes of the month of October. And they were totally inebriated, drunk as a drunken sailor can be. So I shot one, and he fell out of the tree, dead. Could have cared less. The other three were just as happy as me. I shot the second one, and he fell out. And the third one, and he fell out. And the fourth one, out. and they not, never knew what had happened and died in perfect happiness and joy. <laughs> uh, and similar to that, but maybe without the killing, because this is a little more, uh, and this not being the fall, but the spring, my brother and I were in front of our little house there, and we were uh, playing a little catch between the two of us with a football. And between the house and the road was about uh, 30 or 40 feet of lawn, and at the edge of the lawn were maple trees, sugar maples, uh, about eight of them right in a row, right along the road as, as trees are grown along the edge of the lawn. And these were trees that we uh, tapped every year and made our own maple sugar out of them. Not just those six or eight trees, many, many others as well, but those were six or the eight that were being, uh, being uh, tapped. 
And as we were playing there, we noticed that there was a bird on one of the trees. He was about uh, chest high, and he was hanging on there. And we started to look at it because he hadn't moved for quite a while. And sort of surprised because we were kind of running past him and not... He was paying no attention to them. We had not been paying much attention to him. Now, the term yellow-bellied sapsucker sounds like some creature that somebody invented. That's an awful name, a yellow-bellied sapsucker. But this was a yellow-bellied sapsucker. Now I know why. He was hanging on there, and when we looked carefully, you could see he had made five small indentations in the bark of the sugar maple, and he would work from the left to the right, always from the left to the right. He would sip out of the first hole, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, then the fifth. Then by the time he got to the fifth one, the first, the first one already had a little bead of maple, not syrup, but uh, what would you call it? nectar, I guess, at this point, perhaps. And he was working along back and forth. And when I was watching him, and he had no no fear at all, and I thought, well, let's see how scared I can, you know. I, so I walked over to him, and he, within arm's length, and he was totally uh, unconscious of my presence, could have cared less. So I reached out, and I picked him off, like you would pick an apple off a tree. I picked him off the tree, and he didn't struggle or anything else. I put him on the ground, and he wobbled around a little bit and walked his way back up the maple tree to where his little indentations were and went back to drinking. Of course, the, the nectar or the sugar water had also, just in those few seconds that it was, had turned enough into a little bit of alcohol that he was totally inebriated as well. A happier ending because there was no no death in this one. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I, I've I've seen some a document a BBC documentary about um, animals using intoxicants. If whether there are monkeys that will steal uh, booze from beachgoers, and or like in the natural world, just um, mm-hmm. you know animals eating psychedelic psychedelic plants and stuff like that fascinating Mm -hmm. very fascinating um yeah that's a fun story i like that one a lot um since we just maybe a little final note since we um talked so much about your life travels which we've been talking about you me and vivian and my aunt um over the past few nights at dinner i've been finding that all very fascinating you said something last night at dinner that i thought was quite simple but very beautiful which is that in all of your travels and being to a hundred plus countries, um, meeting people very rich and very poor, that um, that their capacity for joy and sorrow did not change at all from person to person, from country to country. I mean, that the poor in Yugos in Ethiopia and the poor in Bangladesh had the same problems and the same victories that we have. There are different ones in in fact, but similarly emotionally, the sadness and the joy. And the ability of people to be happy or to be sad depends 
solely on their personality, not on their uh, status in life or their ability to spend money or to have uh, modern gadgets. Uh, I have been absolutely... just amazed that in Ethiopia, for instance, where people in these little huts, eight or ten people in a little uh, mud hut, can be happy at the child's birth and praise it and the village will gather and it'll have a fiesta or the, the Easter especially is a, is a big time they will eat their injera and their wat and their boiled egg or two and dress up and dance and have a terrific time with hardly any means, any real ma- mm. means. And yet the same people next door will be saddened by the death of a child and wail and, and moan they have the ability to be sad, just like you and I can tear our hair out, or happy, just as the best of us can be frolic and, and happy. And it has very little relationship to their wealth or the ability to be uh, to to finance any portion of their life. Do you, and do you think so? You so it's not it's not. Um what life it's not environment it's not what happens in life and it's you think it has to do with one's personality yes or with one's attitude maybe well the two are very closely related don't you think i think think attitude you know when you listen to new age a lot of new age um healers and thinkers Mm -hmm. you know it they attitude it's like how are you going to perceive the worst in life you know i have a friend one of my good, close female friends back in New York, her childhood was terrifying. The really dark stuff happening. Um, you know, she's an incredibly productive woman. She's super positive. I um, mean, you know, of course, she has her she has her trials. And her brother was the com- complete opposite. The same things happened to him. Mm-hmm. He died recently, and I think it's probably from from drugs or suicide. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, what is that? Mm-hmm. It's exactly the, the the example of what I'm talking yeah. about. Here, I, here, brother and sister, and yes. one makes themselves happy, and the other uh, brings himself to to death at the end. Yes, and um, yeah, I can be very gloomy. So I just I think that reminder of attitude. Well, know? attitude, I think, is part mm. of your personality. Mm. There are people that are optimistic and mm. they will always see the silver lining mm. and there are those that are pessimistic and no matter how good life is, they'll find some part of it mm. that is uh, troubling to them or uh, creates despair. Mm. Uh, I see it in my own family. Mm. <laughs> I, I can put my finger on the optimist and the pessimist. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's much more fun to be around the optimist. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. And um, I guess in, in, in final, final closing, I've just been thinking about it because I thought it's speaking of pessimism and optimism. And I hope, uh, I hope you'll take this the right way. But so I'm, I told you last night, I've been doing a, a form of therapy for like eight years. So what it is, it's, it's the, 
it's the analysis through the lens of Carl Jung. So I'm very into Jungian uh, psychology and Jungian dream analysis, things like that. But one thing that Carl Jung kind of, uh, one of his kind of philosophies was the stages of life and where one is. And, you know, well, what the shit do I know? I'm 35. But, you know, from reading, you are in that final stage. Yes, I am. And the psychological... In my mid-80s, I am very close to the end. And, you know, I would consider you an optimist. Uh, You're in that final stage, the healthy psychological... um, purpose of that stage is the preparation for death and as you approach it um it's uh i guess a right a sacred right in as you move towards that and yesterday while we're shooting guns down in the field you showed us that you have already made your like your your tomb (laughs) on your property you've already had a enormous stone block put that is your tomb and you told us that you're playing to use tulip poplar to make your own simple coffin. And I was like, I'm pretty, and I told you yesterday, I'm pretty sure I've heard it was Daniel Boone made his own coffin and would practice sleeping in it. And I I just, we both, me and Vivian, thought that that was extremely cool. Mm -hmm. And I hope that when I'm in that final phase that I have the same kind of, I mean, I don't know what, how, you know, of course there must be some some melancholy as you approach that, but Mm -hmm. also uh, there can be joy in it. Well, you take, if you live life well, and I hope I have done that and try to do that, you take control of the things you can control. And you deal with the rest, and you try to focus on the things that you can do. Mm. Uh, I can't, I'm going to die. I can't avoid that. Mm. But I can make it much easier for my kids. Mm. I can arrange my financial side, of which many people do, but when death occurs, nobody's going to have to run around and try to pick a coffin out for me mm. or to decide uh, where I'm going to be buried because I've already written that all that down. Mm. And it's not out of, uh, uh, what would you say, uh, distaste that I'm doing this. It's, mm. it's, it's what I can do mm. and, and do it. I can't, I can't deal with the rest. The death mm. is going to come. Mm. And at my age... Another three years, I'll take them. Mm. I'm hoping for a lot more than that. You got a lot more I'm, than that. I'm, I mean, you're I'm, a I'm super poised, healthy guy. I'm poised to go to 116. I think you got that. But I didn't. I'm, your mom make it to 100? No, no. I had a grandfather that made it to 96. Okay, okay. Right? okay. Which is, but I had another one that died at 50. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, um, yeah. Well, you know, I also, you know, just final words as I close this thing up. Um, it has, I was telling you last night at dinner, um, I wasn't sure how much more I do with the podcast and, but I feel revived in it because of some really kind messages people have sent me. And I told you last night, um, speaking of things like death and end is like, I would have killed to have a recording. Someone who have interviewed my English granny on the other side of my family or Mamie and Pepe, mm-hmm. who, who are your wife's parents. So it's like I would have killed to have he- heard them in their final stage of life to tell stories about, you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s. Like I would have absolutely loved to have heard that. Well, this is one good thing that happened, many good things that happened in my life, but one good thing with my father, he had never talked about the war at all, even though 
he was being shot at by the Germans and, and then chased by them trying to kill him after the Germans took over Holland um, until he was getting older mm. and I was the last of the kids in the family that wasn't married and I was still going because they were living in New Hampshire. I was getting, getting up there quite a bit in the autumn to hunt because that's one of the good places in the world to hunt. Now in my mid-twenties and my parents uh, having all of the other children in the family married and flown long ago the nest, it would be in the evening just the three of us uh, hunting during the day and then we would build a fire at four o'clock, five o'clock in the fireplace. My father and I would each fill a our glasses with Geneva gin, which is the Dutch drink of preference. Uh, and for the first time in his life, I would get my father to talk about World War II. And my mother would also talk about what being married, what her end of the experience was like. Uh, and these stories came out, and my father would tell one, and then my mother would tell something else, and then my father again would, would remember something new, and it would go on. <laughs> and then I went and talked to my brother, and I got him to tell me some of his uh, reminiscence of the same period of time. He was a bit older than I was, so he, at seven or eight, was had a little different <coughs> sense of uh, the memories even than my parents had. And those stories that made up the contents of We Escaped. And when I was trying to put that book together, it was a question of what person should be used, a third person or no person at all. And then I realized the way I had to tell it <coughs> was to tell it in the voice of each of those persons because my father <coughs> had some stories in perspective. My mother had her perspective on things. My brother, as a young child, had his perspective. And me, even younger, remembered a few of the things that had frightened me the most. Uh, and so that was the way this, that, that book is written. It's written... Uh, chapters, each chapter is a different speaker, uh, but they all, of course, talking about the same thing at the same time. Uh, and it makes a very, very good read. I mean, how incredible. I mean, there's so much going on there. One is the, the, um, the ancient human meeting place of the fire where, you know, and the hunter coming, you know, meet, coming around the fire to cook the food or the, in the night and this, the original place of the storytelling. Yeah. And then also for you guys to all, I mean, it's just so special. It's like also all dealing with this brutally traumatic event and all kind of work, talking it through and working it through. It's, but, but if you read the book, you see the same it. thing that we talk about, the sadness and the joy. Yeah. There was joy in that book. There's a lot of passages where people are having a wonderful time, mm. particularly the children who were a little more ignorant, of course, of mm. the danger that they were facing. Um, mm. And the family came away the better for it, or at least not for the worst. Mm. <laughs> well, that was a, that's a beautiful way to finish this. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a real inspiration for anyone who still has um, elderly family members 
to really get get them one on one and talk to them. When once my grandparents were too old by the time I reached a point in my mid twenties where I realized there were things I should be talking to them about. I wasn't thinking that when I was a teenager and they were still sound. But by the time I'm saying, oh my God, I wish I asked my grandparents this and that about their lives, um, they, they were already kind of gone. So this is a poem from Poems from the Blue Ridge. It's called One Path Through Time, and it touches on some of the philosophy that we've been just discussing here. It is somewhat parallel to Robert Frost's uh, The Road in the Woods. What is it called exactly? The, the Road Not Taken. One path through time from birth to death. Regrets, regrets. Narrow the path through time. Beautiful the, for the forest it traverses. So much to see. So many smells. I woke today with deep regret at paths I had not traveled. Most days the awe of my surroundings, the joy of stepping at a lively pace, the companionship of those I meet along the way satiate my senses and bring great joy. And yet today regrets. So little time before I reached the summit, so many paths I might have taken, sights I might have seen, loves I might have loved. So little time, so narrow a path, so many other paths, so many other paths untraversed. I am thirsty today, while so many other days I have drunk deep and stepped along the path giddy in the aftermath of wine. Today, my throat is parched. Regret. Regrets for all the wine I might have drunk. Sadness at the wine we might have shared. So little time before I reached the summit. So many paths I might have taken, wines I might have tasted, loves I might have loved. So little time. So many other wines. We might have shared so many other wines untasted. One path through time from birth to death. One path, no more. Regrets, regrets. And that's it.